0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Coriolis Effect. We know the secrets of the void. I'm Matthew.
1: And I'm Dave. And we've got an action-packed episode, as usual, for you today. We have uh, World of Gaming coming up with a a lot of stuff to talk about, actually. Um, A lot of Kickstarters and some other bits and bobs. And then Matthew is going to talk about Reputation. Um, something yeah, that, I
0: don't like reputation.
1: No, well, um, you can tell us why, and then we can have a talk about uh, how we make it a bit better. The discussion point this week is the Nomad Federation. Um, so, really interested to hear what Matthew has to say about that. And then following, so that, you're
0: hoping I've done my homework, then?
1: You've better have done your homework because I did <laughs> so much homework last time that uh, you know. Um, the bar is set very high, Matt. So you better do, you better have done well.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna compete with your trade. But, um, <laughs> uh, I've got a lot to talk about with the nomads.
1: Excellent. Um, following that, we'll have a follow-on essay from you, following on reputation about Oasis, uh, which I think is going to yes. be really interesting. And I have a spectral Corset update to round off the program. And I think that's about it for today. But we've got quite a lot to talk about in those five or six different uh, different topics.
0: So we better get stuck in. We better of do. Of course, in the world of gaming, the biggest news is the current Kickstarter, which I'm sure will still be current when uh, we drop this into your podcatchers. Pod and that's uh, Frieligan's Emissary Lost. Emissary
1: campaign. Lost. Yeah, absolutely. I just saw today that we've just passed 1,000 backers, which I thought was really good. Uh, I
0: saw earlier on today that we passed 1,001 backers, which, of course, a 1,001 well, nights seems particularly appropriate.
1: <laughs> uh, potentially. It's funny, I also, um, for the first time, I watched the video trailer for Emissary Lost today. And as the music started, I was going, hmm, that's really familiar. Where have I heard that before? And it's obviously <laughs> the music we use to open the bloody podcast, isn't it? Duh. Anyway, yes,
0: it is. Um,
1: but they didn't steal
0: it from us; we stole it from them. Well, we didn't steal it from them. We asked their permission. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we said so
1: that's good. We, yes, we asked kindly, and they said yes. Video. I've got to admit,
0: I am. Um, I, I backed in haste. Um, I was at work when it when it dropped, and I'd set myself a little reminder, but I knew I was going to be in a meeting. Uh, and so that meeting overran a little bit. It should have finished, actually, pretty much at the time when it dropped. But when I then looked at my phone as we were moving on to, um, uh, uh, to another part of the building where I worked, I um, could see it had dropped, a little reminder came up, and I just went straight to the website and backed, thinking, I'll read it all later. And um, yeah, and did, eventually I did read it, but what I did you do? looked at the video. Is, is the video good? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, it's alright. It's it's not the same quality as some of their uh, Mutant Year Zero videos, which are absolutely fabulous. It's just um, uh, pretty much still artwork with some text over the top with good music. So it's fine, but it's, uh, you know, what they need to do is do some some trailers like the the Year Zero ones, because those Year Zero ones are absolutely fabulous. I mean, (laughs) the one I like the most, just to digress slightly, Was you have for, uh, for for mutant year zero, you have your character walking through the zone and looking really cool with all his you know uh, sort of outfit, and he finds this arc and he's looking at it and you see a reflection in his in his goggles of a flash of light and it's a sniper on the arc shooting at him and it hits him and he falls down dead. It's just a great great video. <laughs> people haven't watched it, go and find yeah. it. It's absolutely brilliant.
0: Manages expectations in terms of playing that game. It does. It? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Um
0: Well, I've just noticed, actually, that uh, Freer Lagan have put out an update on the MS3 loss campaign, and they, too, spotted that we were at 1,001 backers. Uh, although, uh, as they write, it's 1,010. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what I saw, yeah. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're very chuffed with that.
1: Well, um, no, not surprising. One of the interesting things that um I saw is... One of the uh, stretch goals, the algebra of the icons uh, scenario yes. looks really interesting. So it's a murder mystery uh, scenario, which obviously we don't know very much about it other than the little bit of text they've, they've chucked out so far. But it immediately made me think of the robot books with Elijah Bailey written by Isaac Asimov, um, with Elijah hey. Bailey being the the detective who's called in to...
0: The, the, the three laws of robotics. Yeah,
1: exactly. He's called in yeah. to investigate murders that look like they could only have been uh, caused by robots and it's all about how the, the three laws are are kind of circumvented or, or not, as the case may be. But it really reminded me of those, just looking at it and just... Um, and that's, a good, yeah. that's a good association because those books are great. Um, I love those books. I love those books. Uh,
0: they were some of my earliest sci-fi.
1: Yeah, well, likewise. You know, beyond
0: sort of Juvenalia sci-fi, which <laughs> so that's good. Now, tell me, Dave, what level did you back at?
1: Oof, what was it called? I I backed at. Oh, let me have a look. Was it? Oh, I can't remember. What you the want name.
0: those dice, don't you? you I want, want the dice.
1: Stuff. Yes. So, so you've
0: uh... backed at ambassador level, haven't you?
1: Is that what it's called, ambassador? That might be. I think ambassador right. levels
0: uh, that gets the book. Oh. It gets um, so... the, any of the printed stuff. It gets all the electronic stuff, of course gets I, the
1: dice i backed ambassador you're right yes yes yeah now, what did you, see, you that's, that's, what, what did that's you a really
0: sensible thing to have done
1: i haven't <laughs> done the sensible thing you normally are very sensible though so yeah, i think you've had a rush of uh... <laughs> blood to the head haven't you with this
0: well i was doing it in a rush as i say i backed quickly <laughs> and i thought well I haven't got time to read what you know comes with all the levels, so I'll just back the most the expensive level, and then I'll review my decision making later on. <laughs> so currently, I'm backed at icon level,
1: and that's how um, much.
0: And that is well. Uh, does it sound better in Swedish or English? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure.
1: <laughs> Don't think it sounds um, great in either, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in 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 krona, it's. Uh, it's a mere one thousand eight hundred krona. No, it sounds awful in kroner.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, that's about uh, one hundred eighty pounds. Quid.
0: On the other hand, it's entirely different in pounds. It's well, it says here one hundred and fifty-seven, but I right. don't think our exchange rate is going to be that kind to me.
1: No, um, I think I it is because be the because like- the pound has nosedived since Brexit came out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot weaker against the kroner than it has been. So that's probably so about that's, right. Yeah. You
0: know, one hundred and seventy something. Um and I, <laughs> now I'm really torn uh you know i I was you know as I say, I backed it thinking I'd read it later, and I could always you know change my pledge, but I haven't changed my pledge yet, and I haven't changed my pledge because I love that artwork
1: well i that- you do realize now that you've announced on the podcast your level of backing, if you do reduce it, then you're just going to insult Costa and Nils and Ricard and Thomas. So you well, have to stick with it now. You can't change it.
0: Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to stick with it because I want to get... I, you see, the, the thing you get uh, for that level is you get a limited edition version of the book, which actually, I might come back to that. I've, I have some thoughts on that. <laughs> but you also get a exclusive, high-quality canvas print, 50 by 70 centimetres of Your Choice of Art by Martin Grip. And I got mm. five things there. Uh, the... But actually, that might I'm be
1: wor- that to. might be worth doing. Actually, how long is left on the Kickstarter?
0: <laughs> well, that's that's uh, they have got the Martin Grip cover piece with a beautiful golden lady holding the yeah. uh, holding Coriolis in her in grip. her palms. Yeah, I really really want that. That's nice, isn't and, it? But that actually brings me back to the book. I'm not that fussed with the um, with the limited edition cover. Okay. In fact, I think I kind of prefer the basic cover.
1: Mm. Um so, What's... I don't
0: know. I, I, um, but I tell you what, I, I have a I have a thought here. Of, there are 25 of these icon-level backers. Uh, I don't know when it sold out, but it obviously sold out pretty quickly because they say sold out now. Oh, is icon-level if...
1: sold out already, is it? Yes. Ah, uh, okay.
0: So, if I decide, or rather my wallet... Or my wife listens to <laughs> me. Um, the, the one advantage
1: the, that our families and our wives don't listen to our podcasts is you can say what we like, knowing that we don't get any comeback. <laughs> yeah, but
0: my boy sometimes listens to podcasts. Yeah, and what yeah, says he listens to this one mine don't. My wife. I, I'm I'm quite uh, safe. Anyway. I'm quite
1: safe. I mean, that's yeah. So some of the money I've spent on some kickstarters, you know, Jenny will never know about, which is great. Yes,
0: and <laughs> we never need to tell
1: her. Um, <laughs> no, it's just between you, me, and all our listeners. <laughs>
0: And all our listeners, yes, and they won't breathe a word. I was, but I was, if, gonna, if, I was
1: going to say, and the rest of the English-speaking world, but then that'll also have to be the Swedish-speaking world as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of international listeners. So shush, please, um,
1: guys, don't tell anyone. Shh,
0: <laughs> shh. But my thought is that if I am struck by sudden good sense and <laughs> reduce my pledge to the very good value ambassador pledge, which I recommend to everybody. Mm. Um, if I have to reduce it, though, I think there could be a bit of demand. I think there are some people out there wanting to get the deluxe version of the book. You Quite know, if possibly, they yeah. Got the limited edition uh, cover, of the core book, which I didn't go for, then they might want a matching cover of this uh, of this uh, campaign, and so this might be hot uh, hot property. So I was thinking, that if <laughs> I do, I might make an announcement on Twitter or in the forums beforehand and say, if you. Spread the word about our podcast, I'll put you in a raffle, pick a name out of a hat, and then I will liaise with you about exactly when uh, I that's a so good pledge <laughs> so that somebody could be there to grab it. What do you think to that idea
1: i uh, I think that's a really interesting uh twist on the whole kickstarter thing it's now I guess it might set a bad precedent because people then buy up all the kickstarters and then auction them off but <laughs> uh it's a bit like uh yeah, to well, ticket podcast it's a bit like ticket touting isn't it but um uh, yeah, be the first to do it. Why not? That sounds like a great idea. Well, uh, we'll,
0: we'll, um, we'll uh, the problem is now, Nils and uh, and Thomas and everybody from Freer League are going to hear this. We might get a cease and desist order from
1: them. <laughs> we might. Well,
0: <laughs> well, what, Let's although, see what happens now we've said it. Although, uh, what, it, what, we, it do, said though, what it might do... As you said, though, we've got do a lot though. to what cover. Do we it, want to talk more about MSV Loss stage?
1: No, I'm just going to say, what it might do is encourage Nils and the guys to make more slots available at that level, possibly, if there's a demand. I don't know if they can do that uh, in the terms they of They did the something like that with the core book offer, didn't they? Yeah. Uh,
0: they released another version, limited edition, and I so, think they also released a 100 more for UK buyers because they'd got something wrong in the UK pricing or something.
1: So I think so. there might be options there. So they might listen to this, and rather than cease and desist us, they might just say, "Well, crack on, Matt, but screw you, because we're just going to offer ten or twenty more slots anyway." <laughs>
0: <laughs> they may do that too. But I well, think well, we'll you know, I,
1: I, I don't think um, we need to worry about uh, the free league guys endorsing and supporting our podcast. I think, um, I think we've we've cracked that one. I'm pleased to say. Cool. Um, yeah,
0: they endorse it. I, I put a link in the column, uh, in in the in the uh, comments, I should say, to episode 14 where. Uh, they were talking about the campaign with us, and um, and said, you know, if you want to find out more, you might want to listen to this.
1: Yes, and
0: they very kindly put in an, uh, put another comment in saying, oh yes, everybody should listen to the Coriolis affair, <laughs> which obviously everybody should. Tell <coughs> all your friends.
1: Indeed, uh, yeah, yes. So now that's probably enough on emissary lost, um, but I yeah. think there's um we can connect through though quite a nice little segue onto the um uh, the Mutant Year Zero, Road to Eden, although it's not a Kickstarter. But um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Funcom, which I think are the distributors, um, put out information around a computer game coming out, which is based on Mutant Year Zero. And I had a brief chat with Nils uh, and learned a, little, a, f- a few bits and bobs, but not not a great deal, uh, because Free League aren't heavily involved in the creation and production of the game. They've obviously offered some creative uh, Insight, and it's based on mutant year zero, so clearly they have a, a an equity there. But um, the game is is pretty much being developed by a company based in Mal- Malmo called uh, the Bearded Ladies, and it's a <laughs> single player uh, XCOM like role playing game for for the computer, which uh, you know is going to be uh, it's going to be excellent. I I my wife saw it and she went, oh, you're going to buy that, aren't you? <laughs> so <Sorry>, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think I'm going to buy that one. Yeah, that's that's that's. But surely special. she's going to
0: play it. She's a bit of a gamer, isn't she? In the in <laughs> the computer world.
1: She used to be, not so much anymore. She's kind of fallen out of gaming over the last few years. Um, How has pro- she? Probably mostly down to the fact that she's got a, uh, a kind of a career now, <laughs> and she's working very hard in her job. So she finds that uh, when she gets home of an evening, she doesn't really have much energy for 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 computer gaming anymore which is fine uh, you know, up to her of course but uh but yeah so i just wanted to put a uh, a flag out around about that which i thought um it's a really nice interesting uh sort of development of the mutant year zero franchise into what might be a much bigger market and then that might draw people into the tabletop gaming realm as well the
0: mutant brand exactly in. so and, i think and that's lots of other exciting stuff that Freer again are doing in terms of um, trying to gather the whole mutant brand and stuff. They've made a couple of announcements on Facebook recently. So first of all, we've got Mutant Ad Astra, which uh, seems to be Adventures with Space Monkeys, according to the illustration. Uh, ah. There's a monkey in a space suit <laughs> making a spacewalk uh, outside a space station. So I think this is Orbital Mutant. Um, and it reminds me of an old Cyberpunk twenty twenty expansion called Near Orbit. Do yes, you remember
1: that one? I do. I've got it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's quite good. I, 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 that's one of the best uh, expansions that that game ever had.
1: It was um, really good. I think my, uh, again, digressing onto Cyberpunk a little bit. I, as the GM running Cyberpunk, as I, as I did for for our group, quite a bit. I always found the translating it into orbit much harder to keep the sort of look and feel that I loved about cyberpunk, of the kind of gritty, wet streets. Um, yeah. Element. So I, I, I love the idea that I tried to do that, but for me, it never, it never really took that cyberpunk grunge with it into orbit. I didn't think.
0: Well, no, I think you're right. You can't be that grungy in orbit, despite what they try and do in Alien and uh, on the. Hmm. Uh, uh, well, I guess, uh, I guess if you've got if you've got vehicles regularly going back and forth, they will get a bit dirty. But um, the environment up there itself is going to be, uh, I don't know, yeah, not cyberpunky. But, no. but actually, I kind of liked Neo Orbit because it was almost a game in itself, just running concurrently with with what was going down in the dirty, wet streets on Earth. Yeah. Um, so, and there were some nice ideas there about. People with um, monkey-like physino- physonomy, physiology <laughs> um, finding it quite easy to operate in um, zero g.
1: Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it?
0: So there's that, but uh, there, you know, I think that's going to come out in Swedish and English at some point. But there's also mutant Hindenburg. Yeah, and uh, now that was announced on their Facebook page, but in Swedish. Facebook did a bang-up job of translating it, but uh, I'm still <laughs> not entirely sure I, I understand um, what's going on with it. What, what's your take?
1: No, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I don't really uh, I understand what, what, what's going on here. Uh, as you said, I, uh, the Swedish is, um, and even though I know a little bit, it's still quite difficult to penetrate. But the one thing it does seem to be trying to do is drawing together that, a whole breadth of mutant year 0 uh franchise and bring it uh bring it all into one canon effectively which I think is a really really nice idea also going back to um I think it was mutant Heirs of doom which is one of the original ones so mm-hmm. trying to draw that into the uh, the mutant canon as well bringing it all together which is um which is great because as far as I've been aware the sort of mutant Heirs of Doom early Mutant games and the Mutant Year Zero franchise, whilst sort of loosely associated, were different games and different settings. Uh, Not having played Heirs of Doom, so I might be talking completely uh, out of my backside here, but that was my sense. And now you've got a game that's trying... Please feel free to correct us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But with this um, Mutant Hindenburg bringing everything under one banner, that that sounds like a really good thing. If it, if it helps players like me get into some of that early mutant, um, which I haven't done so far, that would be a really good thing.
0: Yeah. And of course, will it tie up with Modifius's mutant games? Um, I don't
1: know. I don't know. I don't get you know, that, that sense. That might just be a
0: stretch too far.
1: Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't get a sense that it's going to tie into the mutant chronicles that Modifius Uh, Modiphius puts out yeah, be interesting to see, see. absolutely Um, talking of talking of Kickstarters I I received my PDF of Mutant Mechatron the other day they haven't got got the full hard copy book yet, but I've got Mutant Mechatron in PDF and again, you know we've talked before about golden age of gaming, and this really is and I just need more time there isn't enough time (laughs) in the day to play so many the...
0: games, so little time. You know,
1: it's true, it really is true. I mean, just looking down at the list of the stuff that we're talking about on Kickstarter here, um, we've also got Western, which you know, I'm really uh, excited about and waiting to play. I don't know what the planned delivery date for that is yet, but... Um, no,
0: I... I'm being very relaxed about Western, given their yeah, uh, me too. health issues. Oh, um, completely,
1: yeah. Um,
0: I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'm sure it will, it will come. But uh, I'm not worrying, as you say, we've got so much to play. Yeah. It's not like I'm gagging for something else to, to no, distract and I, me.
1: And again, I think with with Kickstarters, I, I've always taken the philosophy that you know you you back it, you you pledge for it, you pay your money, and the game will arrive one day, eventually. Or not. Um, I
0: mean, I I I I always think that you know what I'm what I'm doing here is I like the thing, I make, I want to make it happen. If, for various reasons, it doesn't, then that's the risk I took in backing it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I've I'm been lucky enough so far... angry. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky uh, enough well, so far not to have that position. But as you say, as a gamer myself, I, I want to support people like me who are trying to produce, you know, great new games that I'm going to want to play. Because one day, you never know, I might be in that boat. I might be on Kickstarter trying to do something and I would like other gamers to then, you know, help help me with the chance to do stuff. So I think yeah. it's... Yeah, it's as you say. It's it's not like a go into a shop and and make a transaction. It is it is a different beast, and I think as long as you recognise it as such, and are content with the weight and the risk, then it's great. I'm loving it. I mean, I kick I keep kickstarting stuff. I can't stop myself. So, um, you know.
0: <laughs> this might be a problem. This might be a problem. Um, <laughs>
1: Eventually, it will uh, be. The bank man will come. You told knocking. me
0: about a board game that you've kickstarted.
1: Yeah. Um. Now, now, this was a Kickstarter that I did late one evening after I'd had a couple of beers too many. Uh, I do
0: suggest that's not the time to look at Kickstarter. That's
1: not, but I don't regret having kickstarted it. So the game's called Nemesis, and it's done by a game called uh, a game by a company called Awaken Realms, and the game is effectively alien, where you play a crew member on board a ship, and it's a um. The board is a, is a board that you build. It's got different tiles and you build your ship different every game, I think. And right, yeah. it's, it's a survival game. You've got to survive the you know the xenomorph that is on your ship and is going to be reproducing. Um, and it just looked great. And the, the production values looked really good. And I was a bit drunk. Uh, and so I went for it. And I don't regret having gone for it. I think when it, when it arrives, it's going to be the kind of board game that I absolutely love. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that one come through the door. Um, I don't know what the d- delivery date for that one is, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a punt, but we'll see. Hopefully, it's going to be uh, yeah a good punt.
0: Mm. Um, I'm uh, I I'm, I'm 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 little nervous about board games. I bought not kickstarted, but I did pre-order uh, Firefly Adventures: Brigands and Browncoats uh, a few months ago, and I. Tried to play it last night, and the instructions for it are dreadful. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had three cleverly gaming minds trying to work out what was going on, and there was nothing, nothing like an introductory adventure and stuff. Um, so that's a really and, yeah, common um,
1: thing with a lot of games that the rules, the the quality of rule writing for for board games is shocking. Actually, I the, you have to go on YouTube and watch a demonstration to get yeah that's census. that's what we
0: decided we'd have to do is, um, you know that shouldn't shouldn't be required
1: no it shouldn't be because i mean the rules should be you know should be really straightforward one of my favorite board games is uh, star wars rebellion and it's a brilliant brilliant game two player game and uh, but the rules for it are, are awful um and they contradict themselves and mm. um you know i played it a lot now so me and my boys who i play with um or with whom i play <laughs> <laughs> if anybody if anybody doesn't get that reference go and listen to tales from the loop episode 1 actual play uh, i think it's episode, yes, I think one. It is episode 1 um and it all will become clear <laughs> but uh, well clearer clearer sure. yeah okay fair enough. <laughs> as clear as it might ever get when when we're in the room perhaps yeah um but so we we played it a lot and we've finally worked out i think what the rules are i, mean, I think we've house ruled a few bits and bobs as well that seem to work but you shouldn't have to do that you should have no. a really clear uh, explanation so yeah that's a bit of a a bit of a digression the last thing yes, i was going... there is a
0: digression i i just realized <laughs> we've missed out another delivery that you've taken or or no i think you've got a, a delivery date for a Symbaroom kickstarter
1: yep so the monster codex They've um, put out the delivery dates. So April in Sweden and June in the UK. So I look forward to receiving my Monster Codex and all my other bits and bobs from the Kickstarter in the next, ooh, where are we now? March, the so next two or three months. That'd be great. Cool. Really looking forward to that. They're also about to do another Kickstarter, which is going to um, probably start next month, which will be um, to turn their Yinderos uh, campaign Uh, produce an English version of that so uh, that's something else that I'll keep an eye on and we'll probably back when it comes up um, next month I think if they stick to their to what they've said so far excellent really good Um, I guess we also, also just
0: add another item into our agenda did you get to have a look at the three chapters of background from Forbidden Lands
1: I haven't read it yet, no, have you?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a tough old read. Is it um, okay? Uh, yeah, it's a, so it starts off with a history, um, which is very chronological, uh, and that's not the way I like to read my history. You know, it's this happened and then this happened and then yeah. this happened and then this happened, um, and uh, I, I'm I'm more interested in discovering history through place, uh, which. It's kind of why i i was able to read um the coriolis book because it kind of that you know yeah, the history yeah. emerges there from reading about all the places that there are in the third horizon so this was uh frankly a bit of a dull read but there's this some interesting it. stuff about the races yeah i'm sure it's not as dull as it's meant to be and there's and what i like about it is there is a mythology and you know the history itself is is a mythology it says this is this is what you understand to be true but it might not actually you know be the way it all happened so uh our elves are effectively powered by rubies that come from a comet um humans arrived uh on this continent after a th- three generation long voyage across the sea uh behind uh behind a raven carrying a snake
1: mm-hmm.
0: and is is the god the raven or is the god the snake? Who can tell? Let's have religious war over it. Um, <laughs> and there, there's some other gods. There's, uh, there's Rust and Heme as well, which I I really like. Uh, uh, so there's there's a good religious structure there, and there's a mythology. In it, it's a mythology that makes me think of Glorantha, right. without being quite so exclusive I find I find Glorantha is a really difficult mythology to get into.
1: I've never read that uh, one. Uh,
0: you know, that's a, so from RuneQuest and yeah and, and stuff. I've like played that. it
1: but I've never really got into the background of it.
0: Yeah, um and it's it's kind of tough to get into it and of course with you know, that's one of the oldest mythologies out there. What's it fifty years old or something now.
1: And so fifty
0: years of fans making shit up and um, <laughs> and adding to it. I feel it 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 can be quite off putting. Whereas here we are at the beginning of a new world, and a new mythology that we could all get into. So that's good. Uh, as I say, it was a bit of a slog actually reading it. So um, yeah. maybe only when you've got time. Okay. Well, um, I will. I
1: mean, is, is there is there a lot of it then?
0: Uh, there's three chapters. Three yeah. Chapters. So there's some really interesting stuff about the races. Uh, and as I say, it's the first chapter being a chronology. Is the one that I find really quite wearing.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I'll have a read of that before the next podcast, um, and I could give you my my take on it. And see how see whether I think whether I think you're being, uh, you know, needlessly harsh.
0: Fair or unfair? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Um, I'm of... never needlessly critical. When, when <laughs> I tell you you're wrong, Dave, you're wrong. As we will discover. Um, let's so, move on. Well, to... <laughs> but,
1: but talking of fair or unfair. Uh, I just wanted to uh, to round off our world of gaming thing, but kind of put right something that I, I said a few episodes ago about um, Star Trek adventures.
0: Okay. So
1: I, uh, on your advice, in fact, advice, on your insistence, I've been watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. So I've watched the first season, just started the second. And...
0: Uh, did I insist you watch The Next Generation?
1: Yeah, you kind of did. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'll believe um, you. It's, it's the best.
1: Well, that's how that's how it felt, anyway. Uh, and I'm loving it, actually. It's a lot better than I expected it to be. I mean, there are some episodes that are toe-curlingly embarrassing. Uh, you uh, wait till you get
0: onto season seven. God, there's <laughs> some dreadful
1: ones there. Um, particularly, I, I, I don't know what it is. If I'm sat on the train watching an episode and the Ferengi are in it, I want to turn it off because I just feel embarrassed that somebody's going to look over my shoulder and see that I'm watching a programme with Ferengi in it. It's just awful. <laughs> and um, they're not even the good Ferengi. I mean no, they're they're Ferengi on
0: Deep Space Nine are yeah. actually quite well rounded characters, but the ones in uh, Ah yeah, yeah, you're so, right, the Ferengi episodes aren't much cop.
1: But um But, I, but I've really they enjoyed pale
0: it. into insignificance oh. with the Irish space ghost from the <laughs> let's all wear green Irish colony that um that happens in season seven. Right, uh, okay.
1: Uh, well don't don't <laughs> don't give me don't spoil it for me. <laughs> um, yeah but i mean when
0: when you start watching that episode just just stop and go right. on to the next episode right <laughs>
1: fair enough fair enough um but it's interesting remember i was talking about um the episode that turned me off next generation donkeys years ago when the romulans turned up and just said we're back and then they flew off again that's that turns out yeah. to be the last episode of season one and i actually really enjoyed it this time and I thought this feels like it might be the episode where the Romlins turn up and say hello we're back and fly off again and it was but actually the episode had more going to it than i remembered so i i quite enjoyed it but, but the a couple of things and was, you know
0: there was a reason why um it didn't quite work a real world reason why that episode well, well do you you mentioned two, before
1: didn't... that it was the writers strike or something so it yeah. was all uh, uh, a bit of a problem in yeah. obviously getting the scripts together
0: so I think there was going to be a sort of romulan arc that never happened um, yeah, basically,
1: but actually it didn't feel having watched it this time it it felt fine it didn't it didn't bother me in the slightest um but it's quite interesting though, having watched that season uh, you know that the next generation or the or the federation is supposed to be this uh, fabulous um, example of sort of uh, liberal utopia, but actually it's a it's a feels very much like a, a kind of racist, human-centric, you know, you never get a captain who isn't human. So, you know, it's uh, it feels a bit racist in that sense. And also, it feels like it's a bit of a fascist autocracy. So um there's an the episode where Data, they find the other Data and they fire him uh, up. Oh,
0: Law or whatever. Law, that's yeah. the one,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And... And they, are, you know, they, they, they think that Law is under control, but actually he's swapped with Data, so he's running around doing bad stuff on the ship. And they're on the bridge, and Riker just says, tell me where Data is, and exactly what he's doing. And they press a couple of buttons, and it's like, oh yeah, Data's in the bathroom having a shit or something. You know? And it's just like, hang on, this is a total surveillance society. You, know, you, you yes. can't, can't do anything without knowing there is that, no
0: privacy you
1: know so actually maybe it's not such a liberal utopia as, as people uh, seem to think anyway that's an enormous aside the point about that is that having watched Next Generation it got me really into Star Trek again and I decided that because um, I bought Star Trek Adventures on PDF and I'd read it and didn't like it very much because it just seemed really complicated um, I thought well actually I'd really want to play this so I, I emailed Tony uh and hinted, you know, did you know, do you want to play do you want to run Star Trek on some of our Wednesday evenings down the pub? And I, I softened or I sweetened the pill by saying, Look, and if you do, I'll buy you the book? And he went, Yeah, I'd love to. And I thought, oh damn, I would probably bought the book himself. So I had to <laughs> so I had to buy him the book. Um and then I bought myself the Which book.
0: edition did you go for? Did you go for the standard or the deluxe edition? Well,
1: I bought the standard for Tony. Um <laughs> I bought the deluxe for me because <laughs> because the uh the, the artwork on the cover of the standard is just a bit shit and Isn't the art, yeah. and the artwork on the cover of the deluxe which is the, the 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 bridge and the dish of the enterprise is fabulous I love that of so, the enterprise D of, of course, the enterprise the D yeah enterprise. so I um uh, so I I shelled out the extra 15 or 20 quid largely on the basis of that picture which just seems a bit Kind of a bit extravagant, but um, yeah. But it's done now. So, but I, any. But I can't talk about
0: extravagance. As well. <laughs> no, that's
1: true. No. Um, so anyway, we had our character generation session last night uh, down the pub with uh, four of the players who are going to play. We hoped that a couple of others would join us as well, but they couldn't make it yesterday. And it was brilliant. I had a great time, and I've rolled up a character that I just cannot wait to play. And um, I've rolled up. So
0: let's. uh, We ought to keep this discussion short, but I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, Are you playing? Are you playing in the '60s Trek or in next generation space?
1: No, we're playing next generation, Mm -hmm. um, which is all of our preference, actually. Um, Although none of us are really, really big Trekkies, but uh, a couple of couple of us, Dean and and Connor, haven't ever really watched Star Trek. But um, yeah, next generation. I okay, and,
0: and what's the crew like? Who who have
1: you got? So the captain, which is me. Uh, oh yeah, called Matsumoto. That doesn't surprise me. Matsumoto Sulu. I am the grandson of Sulu from Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, my father uh, was a complete and utter failure. Didn't even get into Starfleet. So in in the game, you get values. Uh, and these are kind yeah. of role-playing uh, hooks. And my first one is live up to my grandfather's spirit. So I'm trying to sort of get past the shame of my father and, and, and live up to Hikaru Sulu's example. Um, but I'm captain of the ship. The We decided in the end to go for an Excelsior class. And then we decided, actually, why not have it as the refitted Excelsior? So... All right, so we're now nice. I'm now captain of the refitted USS Excelsior which was Sulu's ship and one of the talents um not talents one of the traits we put for that ship um was a Sulu in command which again is kind of you know the traits mm. in the game in this sense I'm not entirely sure what mechanical effect they have actually on the on the, the way the game plays but they are um things that will bear upon the ship both positively and negatively so the traits for the ship are federation ship so you get you know the pluses and minuses for just being a federation ship I guess um long serving so the ship will have kind of a proud name but also mm-hmm. the negative might be that bad guys out there might want might target it as an example yeah um, and then the third trait we've got is you know a sulu in command so it's kind of the the family history that you know a Sulu in command of the Excelsior is kind of the right thing to to do which I thought was really cool um the other crew members we have a half human half klingon um mm-hmm. as our security officer not called worf but you know uh um but that that's but cool but
0: Torres you mean uh oh, sorry but- you haven't you haven't seen any voyager have you
1: <clears throat> I have seen a bit of voyager not much but yeah, I know who Torres is yeah um and again, the way the way the character generation works, it's all very collaborative. And you have to have a... Um, one of your values has to link to one of the other characters. So mine is um, Uphold a Klingon's Vow. So in the character generation, you get career events. And my my two career events were Death of a Friend, which we decided was uh, the father of this Klingon. Um who's now on board my ship, who's my security officer, and mm-hmm. uh, contact with a hostile culture, which I took to be the Borg. And therefore, we were at the Battle of Wolf 359, I think it is, when the Federation got its, yeah. got its ass kicked by the Borg. And that in that well, battle... You
0: got your ass kicked by Lacutus of Borg.
1: It was, uh, I don't tell... Yeah, that's, uh, that's Picard, isn't it? Or yes. something to do with that. Anyway, don't tell me because I haven't oh, yeah. Spoilers. I haven't got to that in the season yet. <laughs> although I vaguely got an idea. Anyway. Um so that draw draw our characters together really well, which is quite good. And he's got a, a a value which kind of relates I'm a kind of father, older brother figure to him. Um the other two, we have a Vulcan science officer, the original, and a Tellerite Doctor. Um Excellent. But the I absolutely loved the the the, the 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 character generation system it worked really well it was great fun I mean that's all we did yesterday had a few beers and rolled up characters and, and the starship didn't even get to play anything but it was great fun and we all I think are really excited to play the game so we're not going to play for another month now because we've got two Coriolis games to come uh, and Easter in the way but can't wait to play it really excited about about the game and I'd been a bit down on it when I spoke on the podcast a few episodes ago on the level of complexity it felt like in the game. And it just seemed a bit much. Having read it again, having talked to a mate at work, having chatted with Tony about it, it's all beginning to become clear. That fog of confusion is beginning to blow away. And I'm yeah really looking forward to playing it. I'm really quite excited, actually, about giving it a go.
0: So I can't remember whether we talked on the podcast or I mentioned to you uh, some weeks ago in person that I'd played Conan.
1: Conan, yeah. I think, it, I think it, was, it was in person, wasn't it? I don't think yeah. we spoke about it on and, the cast. Um,
0: and so that uses the same 2D20 rule system or a version of it, I imagine subtly changed uh, to, to fit well. I would argue, not subtly changed enough to fit the story. No. All the time that we were playing Conan, um, I was sort of taken out of the diegesis of the game uh, by the mechanics. So the mechanics seemed to overwhelm the game in a way that didn't make me feel like a barbarian in ancient Samaria or wherever it was we were.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: But at the same time, I thought, I can see how these would work really well for Star Trek. So I'm not necessarily a massive fan of the mechanics yet, but I do think it would work really well for a crew of uh, technocrats effectively. Yeah. Be they humanist, fascist technocrats or otherwise. I'll leave that (laughs) to your imagination.
1: Um, Although it's interesting, uh, in our our group yesterday, we've got um, Dean, Connor and Pete with the other three players there who are obviously all playing in the Coriolis campaign. And... They haven't quite got the idea of Star Trek. They're kind of coming to it with a Coriolis kind of attitude. So it's like, guys, there's a there's a chain of command here and we're all working together <laughs> and you know, we're we're friendly, nice guys. We're the good guys. We're not the bad guys in this one. So it'll yes, be interesting to see how long like... it takes for them to get that get that idea. I did I did have to remind I, them I that we're role playing been... here.
0: I, I think that's always been a challenge. I remember our old you know, we used to play FASA Star Trek. Yes. And I seem to remember that we didn't want to be really in the proper Starfleet. Uh. No. And I think there's uh you know, they call they call D D players murder hobos and and I think obeying the rules is something that um
1: Doesn't come they, naturally well, to us. It, it should be a
0: new experience maybe. <laughs> <for Yeah>. your...
1: <laughs> well that was why I remember with the Fasa Star Trek when I got the Klingon supplement. I ran a Klingon campaign because it basically gave you a lot more latitude to to play to your your natural personality defaults, which is yeah. Yeah, being a bit In chaotic the Klingon and campaign, evil.
0: Campaign, the chain of command is the chain I hit you with when
1: you. <laughs> yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. <laughs>
0: to foreshadow some quotes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's probably enough on the world of gaming. Let's get on to some Coriolis stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, let's let's. Talk about my reputation and not my own personal
1: reputation. <laughs> you don't have one, Matthew. <laughs> so
0: um, uh, I just want to introduce this uh, recorded segment uh, with a little bit of background. This, this came directly, well, two things came together. Uh, but what really prompted these two uh, recorded elements that I'm going to be uh, talking about uh, now and in a little while, after we've talked about the Nomad Federation, came out of reading about the Nomad Federation. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've had long had a problem with reputation, and I've long been tinkering in the back of my mind with what I do to fix it. Uh, and actually, it was, it was doing the research for the Nomad Federation that, that made it all suddenly seem so clear. So that's what I want to say. But let's start off with my problems with reputation. What do you think is the worst rule in Coriolis? It's an elegant system, and frankly, I don't think there's much wrong with it, but I do have a problem with reputation, and this bit in particular. Your reputation score and that of your opponent will affect your manipulation roll. If yours is higher, you get a plus one for each step you outrank your opponent. If your score is lower, You instead get a minus one for each step of difference. Reputation will, however, only affect your role in situations where your social standing in the third horizon is relevant. The GM has the final call on this. What's wrong with this? Well, first of all, it could amount to a massive modifier on manipulation. Reputation for starting characters ranges between 2 and 6, before any modifiers for profession race if you're humanite, or talents. Play a humanite soldier for example and your reputation is zero, it can't go negative. You could argue that it's perfectly valid for a humanite to be challenged trying to convince a Coriolis council member to change their mind, but most other difficulty modifiers range between minus three to plus three. With manipulation it's feasible to have a negative or positive modifier of six dice, before the GM starts awarding points for good deeds. And that's another thing. Reputation is only awarded for, and I quote, something generally considered good and heroic. So if you set out to be the most feared pirate in the horizon, you had better give up any hope of succeeding in a manipulation role. In the forthcoming Forbidden Lands version of the rule set, your reputation can be good or bad. Though it has a similar modifying effect to manipulation, it also works for basic recognition roles. In essence, your reputation does precede you. Which brings me to my main point. Space is big. Even that little bit of it called the third horizon. It takes the best part of 12 hours to relay a message from Kua to Dash Room and back, travelling at light speed. And ships don't go that fast. You'd take three weeks to fly between those two places. The only way to communicate between systems is via portals. And though it's possible, it's by no means instantaneous. And it is very expensive. Yes, the Bulletin has its network of probes to transmit news. But even so, news travels slowly in the third horizon. There are also millions more people than there might be in the Forbidden Lands, and remember, these are systems that have very different cultures, languages and structures after decades of isolation. My argument being, in the third horizon, you will never be as famous as you think you are. So, as GM, I've always seen reputation more as a score of self-respect, self-confidence, than people actually trusting you more because of your good deeds. I might be wrong in this, but if I were to start using reputation as actual renown it would rarely modify any dice rolls. I even wonder if it isn't an optional rule. I always find it slightly weird in fact that the text I read out earlier for using reputation appears as a sidebar on page 62 and not in the body text. After years of reading RPG layouts, I've come to think of sidebars as places for examples or optional rules. I'd have written it off as a layout error, or rather a forced compromise, but perhaps it's intentional, sidebarred because it should be a rarely used rule. Anyhow, I rarely house rule, but I do house rule this. If there is a difference in reputation, you get a single modification die on your manipulate roll. If the difference is massive, it might be two or at the most, three dice of modification, but no more than that. Now, if I'm going to use the reputation score on your character sheet as a measure of self-respect and confidence, how am I going to measure how well people know you, speak of you, and trust you? Wait and see.
1: Really interesting, Matt. Um, thanks for that. I've, I've got quite a lot, I think, there that I agree with you on. I think I'm um, yeah, you know, I you know I have a problem with reputation uh, as well, and actually in my games I haven't used or referred to reputation uh, at all, and I, I wonder whether the reputation is actually much better suited in Coriolis to a game or a style of game that's much more political or diplomatic than the the kind of trader uh, you know nomad trader kind of game that we we tend to play. So, um, yeah, so I, I do wonder whether, you know, I, I I don't feel like I've lost out for not having used reputation. Maybe the players have a little bit. But I also completely agree that, you know, the, the, you know, the extent of potential bonus you would get is enormous. You could get, like you say, plus six dice to a to a manipulate role against a, um, uh, you know, uh, against a humanite soldier, say, uh, and that seems really quite excessive. So I think that seems I, I... excessive,
0: particularly that those could be two starting characters there. And yeah. you know, the the manipulation role is a thing that you know doesn't say that you can't use it against PC characters. So it feels very old school. And no, it's not meant to be mind control. No. Although I guess it does feel that that two beginning characters coming fresh to the game, particularly if they haven't had much experience. About how role playing games work, you know. If if you and I were playing this when we were like, you know, thirteen and fourteen or whatever, um, we would, I think, potentially get quite upset by what one of us did to the other one. If, yeah. If one of us was a humanite and the other one was a. And one was being
1: a, a bit of a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, although um, I think I do, that's I do just think, at the beginning.
0: You know, once we start handing out points of good deeds, who knows where it goes?
1: Yeah, I do think though maybe there's a a nuance here which perhaps you haven't quite captured, which is you know the the reputation applies in situations where that reputation would apply. So, for example, a a humanite soldier with a you know a, a reputation of zero going up against or being influenced by somebody in his command chain say he's got an influence of five you could possibly argue that that would that might apply but it would only apply in very situational positions yeah so it wouldn't and it wouldn't apply um say if a politician uh, or someone unconnected tried to influence them so if they had a, a reputation of five and they tried to influence a humanite soldier the human rights soldier, would, you know, would be, I think, well within his rights to say, "Kind of, who are you? Why do I care about your reputation?" It's so you could, you could play it that way. I think. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah, and I think I, I think there are circumstances where, um, it, well, I think that I think there are almost a million to one circumstances where it wouldn't apply, given you know everything I said about the size of the horizon. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, I do. You know,
1: I do love your phrase where you say in the third horizon you'll never be as famous as you think you are. I think that's a really good yes. line. <laughs>
0: um, so, uh, you know, I'm not that worried by it. And, you know, and, and it's interesting actually that it is sidebarred. So I, I do wonder whether mm. there is an implicit optionality to that rule. Um, yeah. But at the same time in, in the body text, it does say, you know, it will affect your manipulation roles. Um, which, yeah. uh, which, which then makes it more, but but I still have a problem with, you know, potentially plus six, when all the other bonuses and yeah. and modifiers are a kind of up to plus or minus three. So I think if I'm doing it, and I was doing this actually when you were, um, when you were actually really successfully manipulating, uh, uh or lying to Hamza, the, um, woman whose name I've forgotten from the Hamza, wasn't it? handset yeah
1: on paradise Um, yeah
0: you know i i was giving her a modifier in in her reactions to that uh, yeah based on you know what she thought of your reputation but even then you still managed to convince her so um (laughs) yeah yeah, but
1: so, so i think there's definitely a situational thing here about where where and when you apply it or allow it to apply um but i think yes capping it at plus three dice is probably a good idea as well the other thing i thought that came out of that struck me from from, from your uh, from your essay there was uh, the the point around game enforced morality so you're talking about reputation being awarded just for something that's considered good or heroic i i kind of rebel a little bit against games that try and impose a morality in the mechanics of the game so i mean you bring out the point that you know you might want to be You know, the the most feared pirate. Um, Why wouldn't, you know, why would that, you know, your reputation is your reputation. It's it's not positive reputation. It's just reputation. So I think there's definitely something in that you should be able to earn reputation points um, that people would then, you know, if you had enough of them, would hear your name and be terrified that it's, oh my God, it's, uh, you know, Bobby the Black Pirate or something. And that would still give you a bonus to manipulate because they're terrified of you. It so seems think, to work
0: so much better in the Forbidden World, in, in, in the Forbidden Lands, for that very reason. Mm. You know, if we look at those rules there, then, you know, you, it, it explicitly states you get reputation for good or bad things you do.
1: Yeah. And, yeah.
0: you know, if your reputation is based on you being a bastard, then, you know, your name will kind be known so in so that be it. smaller, more compact, less populated yeah. world. And your reputation will precede you, and potentially people will react to you differently because of that reputation thing. Um, yeah,
1: I think also <laughs> talking about game enforced morality. When I first read the um, the the Forbidden Lands rules, where they they talk about you, you you take damage to yourself. I can't remember how it's expressed, doubt or something. Um, mm. If you murder, if you kill somebody, if you if you finish somebody off. Um, I, when I first thought that you know, my my back got up a little bit and I thought, well, hang on. If I want to play a character that, that you know, is it like that and could kill people, then I want to play a character like that. You know, don't tell me that I can't. Um, But then thinking about it, I thought, well, actually, that's probably a good thing because most people, unless you take the, the talent that allows you to be merciless in the game, most people would probably find it pretty damn hard to finish off somebody, <laughs> even yeah. if you've been fighting them. Um, no, so, I well, thought, that, so, so i thought I, I, that's I absolutely that's fine because yeah
0: because actually that isn't about morality that's about a visceral reaction to killing. exactly somebody. yeah
1: so yeah you know, oh, a whole agree.
0: bunch of people have a visceral reaction to um you know to 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 killing a chicken before they're going to eat it
1: yeah uh, yeah that's so, very true i mean how many people could actually kill you know a chicken or an animal you know if you if you ran over a A fox in your car, and it was dying. How easy would you find it to go out and, you know, finish him off? Which would probably be the, you know, the kindest thing under the circumstances. You'd find it very difficult. I would argue. I think. I think.
0: But as you say, there is a way of not having that. You know, if you want to be your merciless killer, you can do that. Just take that as one of your talents. Exactly. Uh, And I, I think that you know that works really well in that game. In a way, I the interesting thing about the morality. I do agree that there's a. There's a game-enforced morality in the Coriolis by saying that uh, your reputation is based only on your good and heroic deeds, which I don't really like. And it makes me think, in a way, actually, are they hinting that this isn't about reputation? It's more about, you know, you and I play L5R and there's your honor stat there.
1: Yes, and about your own self-respect. more about your yeah. honour?
0: And then does it fit into... And I don't want to be... I feel I'm about to be dreadfully orient, orientalist about this. But, um, you know, one, one, one thinks about... The media one has seen of uh, Tuareg and Arab um, participants in uh, antagonists and friends of our heroic white Europeans that are actually the centre of the film... And there's a lot of honour being exchanged there, and you know, I, I will. You are my enemy, but I will still serve you tea, because it is my honour uh, that I won't be rude to you. You know, I want, I want to prove I'm better than you by, by not being rude to you. I yes. will kill you as soon as your back is turned. But because I'm, I'm a better sort, I'm a better
1: thing. sort than you. Yeah, I behave yeah. better than you as well. Yeah.
0: So in a way, I feel it's it probably the what they're aiming for with the reputation the way they were thinking about reputation in Coriolis was possibly a bit more like honour, but I don't know.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, uh, excellent bit of work, Matthew. Good one. I I look forward to listening to the uh, Oasis piece a bit later on. But before that, uh, you have an outstanding question from me from last time to tell us a little bit about the Nomad Federation.
0: Yes. Now, um, you remember you weren't all that um, impressed when I gave you the, the homework on trade and then you got really into it?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Well, I wasn't not impressed with the Nomad Federation, but I am surprisingly more into the Nomads than I thought I would become. Yeah. And I want to kick off by, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the factions in the game. What's your impressions of the Nomad Federation? um well, where do they, where they stand in your top 10 factions in coriolis
1: well i think the very fact that uh, i didn't sort of fully and in detail read the nomad federation pages in the coriolis book until yesterday <laughs> might indicate where they stand in my top 10 which is not very high um i think i think there's so much content and background and setting in the book that I've overlooked quite a lot of it because in my games I've focused on on particular things and so actually I hadn't really focused very much on the Nomad Federation um at all which again I guess is also you know, indicated by how little I referred to them in the work I did around Trade in the Horizon although I mean having yeah. said having said that quite a lot of the stuff I said uh in that uh in that piece does actually marry up quite well with what the Nomad Federation background talks about around things like uh, the disputes within the quadrant of the pillar, for example, uh, and the Nomad Federation having some control there. So I've kind of, maybe I've uh, sort of inadvertently, unconsciously absorbed some of that in my first reading of the book, or maybe I've just been a bit lucky and you know my ideas actually happen to marry up with some of the ideas that are in the book about the Nomad Federation. So to answer well, your question, not very high in my top 10, because I think I've been focusing on other parts of the background to, uh, to feed the Spectral Corsair campaign.
0: Yeah. Now, you see, I think, I, I think your reaction would be the same. I mean, it'd be interesting to uh, put a call out. Is there anybody out there actually who, you know, when they read the book, they went, Nomad Federation, that's what we're all about.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's create yeah.
0: our nomad federation crew of traders or soldiers or whatever, and uh, do that. If there if there is anybody that said that, and thought that this is a faction that I want to work with more than, say, uh, you know, the Zelossians. We've we've done a lot of stuff about the Order of the Martyr, uh, both both in in uh, character generation in my campaign and you know in your campaign as well. And uh, the Draconites seem to be really popular. If people want to be traders, then they're choosing uh, the Free League, I think, more than anywhere else. Uh, So if anybody actually, when they first read the book, leapt upon the Nomad Federation as the go-to faction, uh, then I'd like to hear from you. Mm. Drop a comment in in any of our social media. But I bet you very few of our listeners have.
1: I think they they all have the same reaction as you. Well, I, I think some of the reason for that might be that the Nomad Federation... Uh, as a faction, is actually very similar in many respects to the Syndicate that we talked about. That it's a very disparate, very broad and spread-out faction of multiple mini-factions. You know, lots of families, clans, tribes, um, all kind of doing their own thing, and so they don't really feel like uh, a sort of mega-corporation or mega-ideological society like the Z- Zelosians or the Consortium or the Legion, which actually then might be easier to grasp. It might, well, you know, it no, might grab your like... attention earlier. Yeah.
0: Um, I, although I think, although I think, I think, although well I of think and in fact, I of... argue that it's the Nomad Federation are presented like that, where the Syndicate isn't. They try and present the Syndicate more as a, you know, a, as a great big behemoth. Whereas, yeah. you know, that everything they say about the Nomad Federation is these aren't these people aren't really a federation. They're only just joining in the in the history of the Third Horizon, they're only just starting to come together. Yeah. They are a bunch of warring clans.
1: But- although, although they do uh, still centre around one representative who's trying to get a seat on the council. And yes. that one representative. I, it, this might sound a bit critical. It, it feels a bit like a cop out. Uh, and I think we probably mentioned this a little bit when we talked about the syndicate, that actually. Um, the Syndicate and the Nomad Federation are, are so disparate, and deliberately so, which is great. I think that's really good. Um, but in the space of two or three pages in the book, it's probably impossible to articulate or bring out in any kind of sensible way that that diversity within them. And it's very easy, I think, as a sort of game writer, to fall on something that draws it all together. And then makes it feel like a, a one entity rather than the multiple entities that it actually is. So I do wonder, like you say, the syndicate feeling like it's a behemoth and the Nomad Federation with one representative at the council um, feels well, a bit not like... not even at the council
0: yet. Or um... trying
1: to be on the council. I think what would make much more sense, much more fun as well, would be maybe there's six or five uh, Nomad Federation potential representatives who are on Coriolis vying with one another to be the one that gets on the council? That would be a really interesting yeah. campaign to run, and then you could run it well, almost uh, completely within the Nomad Federation, uh, you know, as your 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 well, wide range of diverse competing um, interests and influences. And
0: this is this is kind of the point I want to make. Yeah. But earlier on, you said, "Oh, but actually, the stuff I was thinking about for the Quadrant of the pillar fits really well with the Nomad Federation," and. I think, yes, it does. And I think almost that this is what the Nomad Federation is designed for. So, uh, you know, if you, I think a lot of people, if they're playing mercenary characters will say, okay, what, what is our relationship with the Legion? Because they're the big mercenary unit, uh, the mercenary faction. But actually, the Nomad Federation are um, probably more warlike and they're involved in more fighting and are having more wars even amongst themselves than than the legion so you know if you if you want to be an ex uh, warrior then the nomad you know the, the nomad clan warrior is something that um uh, that you should consider being mm. and the beauty of them being so disparate is actually you could almost do the whole third horizon in in miniature within the, within the Nomad Federation and have all sorts of factions of your own making as a GM or as a player, having their own politics without worrying at all about the politics that's going on in the wider Third Horizon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're I seeing think a lot of
0: people going, uh, now that the Emissary Lost campaign and the Mercy of the Icons uh, campaign is looking to be two or three big books, delivered over you know a number of years a lot of people are going oh you know i'm suddenly worried that something i'm inventing will be uh will be overruled by by some invention of of a future book whereas i don't think i think you could invent all that stuff in the nomad federation and get away with it because they are so many factions and i think you know you could well do a brilliant political campaign just as you've discussed about okay finally a seat for the nomads is granted but why should it go to the guy that's been asking for it actually the nomad federation you know then send a whole bunch of different people um saying they should be part of the you know that they should be the representative of the nomads yeah and there could Um, be all sorts of conflicts and and stuff going
1: on there i think that would be really good i mean i a couple of Things that came to mind. I mean, one, you know, they talk about the Nomad Federation having more ships than uh, than the Legion than anybody else, but that a lot of these ships are non-combat ships. They're, you know, they're people live on them. They're colony ships. They're uh, transport ships. So uh, it really struck me that this is going to sound like a bit of a digression, but bear with me. So one of my favorite books of all time is called *The First Man in Rome*. Uh, written by Colleen McCulloch. And it tells the story of um, uh, the Roman uh, Republic shortly before it it sort of collapsed. And then mm-hmm. you've got Caesar and all the rest of it. it, it the story starts maybe 50 years before Caesar um, comes on the scene. And one of the great things that the Roman Republic at that point had to face was the migrating German tribes and I immediately thought when I read about the nomads and it's all the warriors and the families and everything all together that had a real parallel to these German tribes who were migrating who were basically nomads and just moving around trying to find land to live. And it made me think that you know, is there a is there a really interesting parallel here that one of the one of the risks, one of the real problems that the consortium uh the rest of the uh the rest of the Horizon faces is that someone, one person should emerge and then unite all the Nomad Federation in one really strong body, because then they'll be much more powerful. So there'll be lots of scenarios or campaigns you could run about keeping the uh, the Nomad Federation clans and tribes divided from one another um, or have one that does start to bring them together and then what does that do for for the rest of for the rest of the horizon, so it's yeah, like, it's a really interesting so, idea. I mean, I think so. the,
0: the the beauty of this is that you could you could prototype this even within the space of the Kua system itself. So, um the Rimwood Weech. Uh, the 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 Rimwood Weech. The Rimwood Weech. <laughs> <that> suddenly <laughs> turned into Jonathan Ross. The Rimwood. <laughs> the Rimwood the, the, Reach. The Rimwood. Diction,
1: dear boy, uh, diction.
0: Um, is an area I, your your I think your players started out there, didn't they? In their in, in. Their,
1: their patron lives there. They haven't been oh. there yet, I don't think. But their patron comes comes from uh, oh, Jacrum right. okay. so... in the Rim Rimwood Re <laughs> In the <laughs> I can't I, in the Rimward Reach. Yes.
0: Yeah. So uh, so Jacrum is uh, I think a really interesting place. Um, it's not a nomad place, but the, you get the get the impression there's a whole bunch of nomads round the Rimwood Reach. Uh, and even there, they're not united. So these aren't the nomads of the Rimwood Reach. There are three nomad swarms, as they call them. So a swarm is how they um, define themselves. And I think that's kind of interesting in that they, they kind of all work together, but they're all doing their other stuff. And so on the Rimwood Reach, we've got three different clans of um, of uh, of nomad. We've got the Metar, who are heavily militaristic. We've got the Badjow, who are, I think, kind of more intelligence and um, subterfuge based. We've got the Yahin Kabu, who are traders. Um, there's also mention of a lost swarm, the Ahila who uh who uh were um early combatants in the Marab conflict where, uh broadly speaking uh prospectors, backed I'm sure by the consortium, uh started mining asteroids that the um that the nomads felt were holy places. And um, I'm pretty sure that the Ahila were were first in there defending the asteroids and probably, with the help of the Legion, quickly defeated. But, you know, so they're there. Just in that space, you've got three clans all vying to kind of probably unite themselves. But but they all, you know, leaders of those three clans want to be the leader of the united Rimward Reach force. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, I think and, you know, like the... if, Sorry, you take, if you
1: take if you kind of take the top off you know the the idea of some of these factions and i think you know the syndicate is another really good example the uh, the sort of campaign or scenario ideas uh okay not limitless but there's tons of them you know you're just kind of limited by your imagination
0: yeah i i think there is and also you know if if you're struggling to find a place for your scenario idea if you're going well here's a thing i want to explore but i don't know how it fits in with all these factions well i can tell you it will fit somewhere in <laughs> the nomad federation yes the beauty of it there is you can you can really put it in there and if you want to expand it and have its impact on the legion and the consortium and stuff like that then go ahead but do it on a small scale first it it, it for me i you know i talk about um the the factions being these great big wheels that really crush uh, player characters under them, rather than player characters being political players. That that's kind of the way I I I, I think it yeah. is. But if you want to be political players, then your characters being political players within the Nomad Federation is a brilliant opportunity. I think.
1: Yeah, I think it is
0: because there's a real sense, you know, you could be the crew that finally unites half of the Nomad Federation into a into some sort of force, a political force to be reckoned with or military force to be reckoned with, you could do that and still not necessarily affect any of the other factions or what else is going on in a big meta campaign, whatever yeah. you're doing. And you could get real, real sense of enjoyment there. Um, it's true. I mean, uh, cause
1: the, You've got all the emissary stuff that's already in the book even before you get the new... The new campaign coming out, and I haven't referred to the embassy whatsoever in my Spectral Corsair campaign. It's not; it's just not been a factor. It's been something. I'm not even sure the players are aware of it. So it's something that is so irrelevant to their daily lives that it's 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 not been a factor in the in the campaign whatsoever.
0: No, but you've got. I mean, you've got. um If you want to do space monsters then you can do space sponsors again just in the rimwood reach and the fact that just a tiny proportion of the nomads from one tiny place not far from coriolis well as i've said actually about two or three weeks travel from coriolis but that's my yeah. idea, um uh that's not far in the, in the scope of things and no, exactly. they you know they've got um uh there there's a creature out in the rimwood reach uh, some darkness between the stars that many space nomads worship, uh, called Bar or mm-hmm. he's got other names like Urubos Aruberos, uh, the World Eater, the Star Dragon, and uh, and it's said that they, you know, that actually the nomads can control him, and you, you could create a whole adventure about well, well, let let's control him, and and let's get him to defeat the Legion, who are currently blockading the. Uh, oh what's it called there's the 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 Armada of the first come which is also right. hanging out around there they're all hmm. these ships that nobody can get into and the legion are obviously worried that uh you know they present a quite sizable navy if they do come back to life well you know you could take your players to make those come back to life to to <laughs> to use the the monster to defeat the uh the legion and then and then take control of one of these ships and or all of them. And yeah, they're yeah. great. I'm just really Lots. loving.
1: Yeah. Okay. Should I, should thing... I expect that Yafet and the uh, Salah and Salem will be going to the Rimwood Reach at some point in the near future?
0: Well, I tell you what, <laughs> I really, you know, I said, I regretted hand-waving that journey over to Mira. Yeah. I kind of really, really wish it had been to somewhere like the Rimwood Reach and you hadn't even gone through a portal. Mm,
1: um, yeah.
0: You know, I, I, I think we tend to think space travel equals portal travel, and and well, I definitely kind of thought that, and I think that was my mistake. I uh, I think we could you could keep the whole campaign within the Kua system, uh, and have spaceships flying and and things like that, and still have fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, yeah.
0: I just want to get on to how liberal the Nomad Federation are. So. Um, How liberal you know are they the, then,
1: Matthew? Sorry? How liberal are they then?
0: I think they're quite liberal. I think I'm reading this right. So, um, for a start, if you want to do body modification, generally frowned upon in, in most of civilization, but not among the nomads. So, um, there's uh, there's particularly a place uh, called Al-Ahalim, Al- which is... Um, where uh, nomads go for biocoding. but across the rimwood weech you've got you've got uh, nomads who've given themselves prehensile tails and things like that to help them get around in zero gravity um, and just trying to find I've got a reference to this somewhere in my notes uh, <laughs> that it struck me that there is this we talked about the reputation that you get when you're a humanite that people hardly think humanites are human I think it was the nomads who are prepared to be more liberal about um, humanites and I'm just going to I can't find it let me just
1: okay but he could quite easily argue that there are whole um, nomad federation clans or factions you know factions within the faction that are humanites because they live in space and they've they've been modified to be more effective in zero g say or more resilient to radiation or whatever so i think that makes that makes a lot of sense
0: no i i i I agree entirely i think these are guys who are willing to be humanite uh you know and and to treat humanites as brothers um so uh for example the berry nomads living in Lubao i think they're probably uh likely to be humanites Um, yeah oh god I'm just trying to find a thing I wrote this down and I can't find it (laughs) Uh, yeah so here we go Um, so this is from page 241 and I'm just going to swing to it because I didn't take a full note I only made a page reference okay So um, uh, 241 uh, I'm going to read from the book. In the past okay. few cycles, a new subject has sparked debate among philosophers and preachers, especially in the Rimward Reach and the Kura system. The matter concerns whether they, whether or not humanites are the spiritual equals of base humans. The issue was first brought up when new colonists questioned the nomads' religious rhetoric. The prophet Ndina addressed the issue in a sermon, and the five head preachers in the Rimward Reach were quick to outline new teachings for the Najim, the humanites. An ecumenical assembly. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm not gonna say those words out.
1: Oi as Najim
0: Yes. Is being Oy organized to est- it's being organized to establish that there is no spiritual difference between humanites and base humans. And um, mm. and so I'm seeing, this is this is the bit that made me think that actually the humanites are the more liberal gang. Um, the the the
1: nomads. Yeah.
0: The nomads, sorry, yeah. That they've been working with with humanites for years, and then yeah. these prospectors come in and kind of go, "Ooh, you're <laughs> treating humanites as brothers and equals," and then they say, "Well, can't, in our can't identity, be having
1: that." Yeah, um,
0: no, and we said we, we think we can, and and we're you know we're going to actually formalise that relationship. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. oh, but of course, being being nomads, not everybody agrees. No, uh, no, and so, I, but but I think there's, there's so much scope for different levels of thought. And as you say, you could invent a whole bunch of stuff for an area of space. And then when it comes to it, you can go, Oh yeah. And I can, and and that's all a bit different from what we've, we've learned from, from subsequent books in the series, because yeah. these guys are actually nomads. So yeah. excellent. these are almost now my go-to faction. If I want to be uh, thinking about, uh, these guys can be criminals, they can be soldiers, they yeah. can be mystics, they can be religious. Whatever whatever sort of campaign you want to run, I think the, the Nomad Federation give you great scope for doing stuff.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for that, Matthew. I mean, that was a really good conclusion to an uh, interesting conversation, uh, recognising that we are banging on quite a bit. Uh, so I think we can... You know, having referred to reputation, I think let's listen to... Uh, you know, the rest of your essay about oases and reputation in that context.
0: Yeah. And I will say that this, this is what really cemented it. Um, reading about the human arts again, brought me back to the station and the rimward reach called, well, uh, I think we, we pronounce it differently, but then we're, we're, we're different parts <laughs> of the Nomad Federation. I pronounce it Jashroom and you pronounce it slightly differently. Jakroom. Jakroom
1: whichever is right Between Well, we're both right cuz you've just no got maps. more all it is is you've just got more phlegm in your throat when you say it that's all exactly yes <laughs> um
0: and uh and I realized that this I have been trying to sort of um formalize how I think about a place that people might call uh, crews might get to know as their their refuge and we discussed it with the gang and Costa said of course we should be calling these Oasis and is entirely right. So, this is my first thoughts on Oasis. Earlier on, I explained how I'm going to use the reputation score on your character sheet as a measure of self respect and confidence. So, how am I going to measure how well people know you, speak of you, and trust you? Well, I think that's more local and based not on word of your good deeds spreading across the horizon, but rather on the places you go. And the people you deal with. There have been some suggestions that perhaps you might earn different reputations with different factions. But I disagree. Factions, like space, are too big to care about the little people. The faction standing talent is, I think, the only mechanic we need to reflect characters that have some influence in a faction. So instead, I offer this. If you visit a place more than once, You might begin to consider it a safe port or oasis. A place to retreat to, to lick your wounds, repair your ship and fence your stolen artefacts. And that's when you start measuring your relationships in that local community. Each oasis will offer one or more services. Right now I'm thinking the list includes ship service and repair, prayer, brokerage, security, traders, counselling, by which I mean treatment of mine points, and Medicurgy, but I'd be interested in hearing any others that people might suggest. There may also be a separate administration. So, for example, your oasis might be Samar's Hammam. Although it's a small location, and ostensibly a bathhouse, which would probably count as counselling, a crew might also use it for brokerage there. Or your oasis might be Jashroom the asteroid station on Kua's Rimward Reach, where pretty much every service is on offer. On Jashroom, the administration is the enigmatic Akbar, but at Samar's it's of course the boss, Samar herself. Here, the administration and the main service, Counselling, are one and the same. The brokerage service at Samar's is actually another regular customer, let's call him Bardas. On Jashroom, the services might be provided by named individuals or, more probably, organizations. For example, the Samaritans will be the main providers of Medicurgi. It's possible for your crew to have a relationship with those organizations without having to name an individual, but your relationship is only at a local level. Having a good relationship with the Samaritans on Jashroom does not mean you can expect the same welcome when you visit them on Coriolis. Just as the Samaritans are an extension of the Order of the Pariah, other service providers might also have a relationship with a faction. Our broker friend Bardas might be connected with the Nomad Federation for example, but they don't need to have such an allegiance. The Akbar of Dashroom is famously independent. To track your relationship I'm thinking about a very simple scale with zero, one, or 2 dice modifiers. Your relationship starts at zero, you're just another customer. But there are two ways to earn positive dice. Do a favour, or a job of work for them, and you get a one die bonus. As Niska said in Firefly, your reputation is solid. Or spend five experience points to claim a personal relationship with the organisation and get another bonus die. The GM characters created with the friend-in-every-port talent don't get the bonus die unless you also spend 5 XP. It's possible to get both bonus dice, but two is the absolute maximum. You can't pay, say, 10 experience points or do two jobs to get two dice. You must earn one with each method. Of course, you can make an enemy of any of these providers. Wrong them. Or screw up the job they gave you and you'll get a negative modifier on future dealing with them. Punish them for that slight, I know what players are like, and the modifier is minus two dice. It's hard to recover those negative dice, just ask Sergei Skripal or Niska's wife's nephew, but each job you successfully do for them will help you get back to a zero modifier. I think though that once you've had negative bonuses, you can never earn a positive die with them. I'm bidding together an Oasis record sheet to help the GM keep track of these relationships. Right now, I'm thinking that each crew might only have one Oasis. But given that the sheet I'm designing currently fits more than one, I might change my mind. Either way, when I've completed it, I'll share it on my blog.
1: I've got a few thoughts coming out of that, but on the whole, I I like what you're talking about there, Matthew. I think, um, yeah, you know, the idea of of uh, of a of a, an oasis or numerous oases uh, is a really good one, and the way you've talked about it, the way you've sort of brought it out, I think is 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 excellent. So I had a couple of thoughts though. You talk about the the services that you know, an oasis might be able to offer, and I think there's maybe a Couple more that you could add to that list. One I'm of which I'm
0: sure there are. So, what are your suggestions?
1: Well, although I think these both might be the same, but um, so I thought they can offer protection or, or they can offer sanctuary. So, if you are a, you know, a good friend, then you know you can go to these places to lie low for a while, maybe, and they will help you do that. Thinking around you know Firefly, you got Shepherd Book and Haven as the place where. They might run to. Yes, you've got others, you know, like Lee Li Chen in Whitefall and the Sanchez brothers in Boros, uh, who end up getting killed because they are exactly places where they would run to after a heist. So I think you know, protection is something that you might be able to offer as well, rather than just a uh, well, quite transactional kind of. Uh, yeah kind, i guess kind of with that, I,
0: and i was thinking i was thinking very specifically about places like haven which of yeah. course uh, fans of Flyify will recognize uh, not from the tv series but from um, serenity the film serenity where it's where shepherd book hangs out and, and in fact
1: it's not such a haven because that's where he gets killed as well sorry that's spoilers that's where shepherd book gets if people killed. And it.
0: the operative finds out where all there Let's call them oases, are the uh, the the Farfly Cruise Oasis, and burns every one of them to yeah. to flush, to flush the crew, um and particularly of course summerglass um, oh what's her name? River. River. <laughs> I've forgotten her name. <laughs> um, uh, River. The the person is 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 specifically hunting out. Um, so yeah, that that was in my mind, and I yeah. guess what I was thinking about that is yeah it's an int- it's an interesting point i i was thinking the administration would be the the person that you'd befriend so you know if you want to seek refuge on Jashroom, then you you want to have a dice with um with the akbar himself and you've got his May personal
1: I... protection i'm not sure i agree because i think jachroom is going to be huge you know it's a very big space station there's probably thousands of people there so i think the the oasis Idea as you've as you've described it, and you know, as you specifically describe it in you know, in your piece, could be as small as you know, Samars Hammam it, uh, yeah. or it could be somewhere as big as room, But I still think you would probably have, uh, like you say, a uh, a key contact or a key friend, so Shepherd Bush on Haven, for example. Um, hmm. But I don't think for room that would have to be the Akbar. That could be. A patron, it could be yeah, some other yeah, no, reasonably right, influential actually. figure of whom there will be loads on a place. No, I'm not the saying you wrong. I'm saying that's where Jack I Room. was thinking in, yeah. in
0: terms of the administration. Uh, but yeah. um, but you're right. It could well be any of uh, any of the characters that offers you some form of protection.
1: Yeah, I also think that um, you know where you say at the end that you you sort of think that the crew should only have one oasis, but you're in two minds about it. I think you're wrong. I think you should be able to have as many oases as you spend the time and effort to develop. Um, so I think actually having your your oasis list that you're going to put together or your Oasis sheet should allow you to have more than one oasis, particularly if you're a trader or you're around the around the horizon, you know you're going to find places of of refuge. All over the place, aren't you? You're not going to be stuck with one that's, you know, room in the Rimwood Weech. I'm going to call it the Wynwood Weech from now on, because I keep saying it that way anyway. <laughs> the Wynwood Weech. <laughs> so Jackroom in the Wynwood Weech um, is a long way away from everything else, isn't it? So it's uh, a place you wouldn't get back to very often. So I think yeah. having more than one oasis would be entirely appropriate and sensible. And in um, fact,
0: actually, a key point that I'm reminded of is uh, that one of the reasons why uh, Costa explained that they didn't do something like the arcs from Mutant Year Zero in Coriolis is because people would be travelling and wouldn't wouldn't mm. wouldn't be returning to the arc every night or however yeah however often they return to the arc normally. So and this is right, this is actually. kind of
1: this is kind of arc light, isn't it? So you have lots yes. of little arcs, um, but none that are actually of the same scale as you would get in Year zero yeah
0: Yeah. no i i think you're right um and i was looking for a simpler system um but in you know in a way i think you could sort of build arcs. so if you know if if you had a community like haven uh, and you wanted to add a service there, you know. You there could be a whole adventure in acquiring whatever equipment and was needed for that service, and yeah, uh, I agree. Recruiting that somebody sounds... to actually provide it, as it were. I think that, that's a that really good adventure. idea. So you could you could yeah. do arc building in the in a way a bit like Mutant Year Zero,
1: but in a uh, different sense. Yeah, I like that. I think yeah. that's I think that's good. Um, I also think that the 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 way you talk about developing your dice uh, is is good my my one concern is you talk about spending five experience points to gain one of your bonus dice that you that would be available in any particular oasis I just wonder is that too expensive to encourage players to actually purchase you know a dice of you know on an oasis with five experience so I Maybe, maybe, maybe the dice should be a reward for some particular good bit of role playing instead. Or if the players, uh, or if the players, um, like you say, do something in role playing terms to develop, or protect, or help the base, maybe they get a dice in that sense rather than spending five XP because that's quite a lot of XP to spend well, the way on a location that you're not going to come back to very often. I, so I just I want. Think it is. so i just I so I just wonder whether I just wonder whether players would be disencouraged from spending points on it because I think I'm
0: trying to disencourage them to spend points because
1: they on it. would have higher higher priorities to spend their x p
0: yeah, I think they might um, I think the easy way to get a dice bonus is to do a job, yeah, you know, do something for the client and i and I think you know I wanted to have one dice that was that was kind of an, an easy reward for, you know, but a, a definite reward. Cause I often think sometimes why are we doing this? Mm. Why are we doing this job for this patron? It's kind of only for the money. Yes. Um So I wanted to say that there was something other than money that might motivate you to do a job for a patient or a, a reward, a recognition of having done a job. Well, um some sort of recognition that future dealings um, might, might advantage you a bit so that's the one that i think most people go for i did think that five experience dice uh, sorry five experience points Points. from one crew member is a sacrifice for that crew member but it is a crew it's a sacrifice that benefits the whole crew
1: yeah maybe i do okay i i I, kind of get that i do wonder actually just thinking maybe the scale should be up to three dice and you get one dice your first dice You get for doing a job, a mission for them. You can then the second dice is available for doing something that, in role playing terms, significantly helps that place. Like you say, um, providing um, you know another service, or uh, I don't know, donating lots of money so they don't starve, or something. And the third one could be your five XP to give you plus three dice. So you've got kind of a Maybe. scale of different level of commitment to the group.
0: I did wonder about three. In the end, I decided against it, but I'll think about it some more.
1: So I guess the other question is, how do those dice work in the game? So so got... I'm
0: thinking that this, this comes down, this is kind of an alternative to you manipulate or... Um, yeah, actually kind of an alternative to manipulate, but I think it might affect other skills. So, you know, if you're... If you're going for, um, uh, uh, let's, let's say the counselling service, you want to recover your mind points, then no, let's not say that. Let's let's go for something that's got a proper recovery mechanic to it. Somebody's offering you medical experience, then if you've earned two bonus dice with them, it's not about you know paying their doctor's bills. It's a it's an extra bonus dice on effectively, the, what they're rolling for your
1: treat on the actual roll, yeah. Because they're because they like you, and therefore they're throwing all their resources to help you rather than just doing it as a five minute round the back kind yes. of. Oh, if I could be exactly. bothered, I'll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. I like that. Um, That's so it good.
0: Can, so all sort, So so but if it if it's a brokerage deal you've got, you know, this is the offence for your stolen artifacts. Yeah. Then. That is always going to be a haggling role, a manipulation role, and it would be a bonus to you on that one because he likes yeah. you really. He's a bit soft on you. Um,
1: cool, I like it. But I yeah. think actually
0: it could be worth filling out, uh, thinking a bit more about what each of those services might offer in terms of skill roles and just make sure that you know there is a, there is a reason for having a bonus. The reason I, I stopped talking about counselling is I can't quite remember now how you recover mine points, and it may be you just don't need to roll a dice at all. No,
1: I think mine points are quite easy to recover. Yeah. I think you just need to sleep or something and uh, you're okay. So,
0: so, yeah, I I think I need to look at all those different services and think is is there one that it's worth having bonus dice on?
1: But I think the idea of the Oasis, as you described it, is an excellent one. And I'm going to hurry up and do that Oasis sheet because I'm going to use it in my campaign. Cool. Okay. Excellent. I'll
0: get that done. Tell me, though, how is your campaign coming on?
1: Uh, well, we had uh, a bit of a hiatus. We haven't, we've played one game in the last probably six weeks, um, partly down to availability of people. Um, but in the end, I, I kind of decided just to run, <laughs> run the game anyway after a few false starts. I mean, two of the players um, aren't around, hadn't been around for a while, so Carter and Mia, so uh, Paul, uh, Pete and Morgan were both unavailable for a long while. And so I decided to run the game eventually. And then in the end, Paul couldn't make it either. So I ended up running it with just three. But that worked worked pretty well. So this episode was called Now Get Out of That. Because if you remember, <clears throat> at the end of the last episode, they just tried to escape from the primitives uh, at the stone ruins on Omran, where they'd been trapped on the, on a ziggurat. And in attempting to escape, they'd crashed. And the Corsair was lying smoking and uh, in, a, in a bit of a, a bit of a wreck in the forest a couple of miles away. So the crash took out basically took out the ship. Um, it also took out Carter, Mia and 8bit, which was my way of explaining <laughs> how those characters weren't involved in the, in the scenario because their players weren't there. That worked fine. Um, so those that were left, Hanbal, osgar, and Norsa, the Nakatra. They assessed the damage, there was multiple hull breaches, the cargo bay was open to the elements, the reactor had automatically shut down and looked like it had no intention of firing up ever again. Um, And perhaps most worryingly, the ship's chapel had been smashed and the altars to the icons had been scattered. So this wasn't the end of their troubles. Um, There were fires taking hold on board the ship and there were some creatures outside that were trying to get in. Now these creatures, I called them uh, cavern hags, but they were based on Minox out of Star mm-hmm. Wars. So creatures that like to suck on power cables and basically tear a ship apart by just trying to eat the power from it. So they had to fight some of these, which they they managed to. Um, they then realised that the only way they were going to get out of this was by reviving 8-bit. Now, my original plan with the campaign, with the scenario... <coughs> sorry, I'll edit this bit out. Just <coughs> start again. So my original idea with this scenario was that they'd have to go to the wrecked colony ship, Riveus, salvage what they needed from it to repair the Corsair, and then escape. uh, All the while being hassled and harried by the primitives and these beasts. So very much a uh, a sort of combat focused scenario. Without 8-bit being there, they couldn't do that because they didn't have anybody with technology skill. So I turned the scenario into one of having to revive 8-bit rather than actually fixing the ship. And then once 8-bit's revived, he could then fix the ship and they could get away. So they remembered that inside the ziggurat, there was this casket that had a uh, had been protecting a, a, a woman. They opened it and this woman was alive inside it. And they learned through Alina that this is possibly uh, what's known as a chrysalis, a chrysalis pod which uh, is a portal builder artifact, extremely valuable and reputed to have the power to revive people. Funny that. So they decided to fight their way back to the Ziggurat to try and get, uh, uh, get 8-Bit into this pod to see if it would revive him. They managed that, and I'll talk a bit in a moment about one of the things uh, running the game uh, that, I, that I sort of took into account. Um, that sort of helped that happen. But they got there in the end. They they managed to get him in the Chrysalis pod. Um was it really a port to build a Marvel? Well yes it was. <laughs> yeah. Luckily. And eight built was revived, and therefore if they could get him back to the ship they could repair and get off the get off the planet. But they were then on the Ziggurat again, surrounded by all the primitives. They then decided to push the casket down the edge of the the cigarette yeah. and run behind it and use that as a way of scattering scattering the bad guys. Now this casket obviously was could make people well again. Exceedingly valuable. Um, I wasn't sure as a GM that I wanted them either to have the money for it or to be able to revive Whenever themselves willy nilly. Yeah. So, so a couple of darkness points, seeing they decided to shove it off the edge of this stone building. A couple of darkness points see it shatter at the bottom into millions of useless pieces so um, it helped them escape but they lost it in the process so they weren't able to use it That's probably great a good outcome. Outcome, how did
0: they actually. feel about that?
1: The, they weren't as upset as you might have expected partly because it did allow them to get a head start on the chase back to back to the ship and if they hadn't had that, then chances are they might all have been killed, because earlier in the game they'd been broken by the primitives. So when they left the ship to go to the to the Ziggurat, um, they were attacked in the in the woods and and they were broken. Um, luckily for them, the primitives their their motivation wasn't to kill them; it was to put them back in the Ziggurat, and that happened to be exactly where they wanted to be. So being broken in the combat actually did them a service because the natives then carried them to the ziggurat and chucked them in, um, which is why they wanted to be. But that was, it was an interesting one because I'd taken a conscious decision to try and pull away from the temptation to go for crits mm-hmm. all the time and try and go and be a bit more broken. But then obviously that has narrative outcomes. It can change the, the, the direction of a scenario. If someone's broken, then there's obviously a consequence to being broken in this instance, it was fine, because it deposited them there exactly where 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 we wanted them to be for the scenario. But I did have one occasion, I had one critical hit which landed on Norsa, the Nicatra, which is Connor's character, and there was a real palpable tension in the air when he rolled the dice. I mean, he was... Um, he'd played Valdez who'd been killed with a bad critical dice roll, and I was just thinking oh no, don't kill him, don't kill him, don't kill him, but you know, the dice came up and it didn't, you know, it was a minor, a minor critical. But still, I think as a GM, there's a lesson to be learned around how often do you place your players in that life or death tension moment of rolling the critical dice to see whether they live or die. And I don't think you can do it too often, actually. I think you need to do it once in a while, but you shouldn't be doing it three times oh. a game or four times a game. Unless, of course, it's kind of the big finale of the campaign, in which case you, you might want to make it a bit more threatening in that sense. So anyway, they managed to, <clears throat> to escape, got back to the ship, uh, and then were able to repair the ship and, and get off the planet. So that was the end of, end of the scenario. But one of the things I wanted to mention was um, there are no rules in the game for chasing or being chased. So I decided that um, they'd managed to break a line, a hole in the line of natives. So they got a head start, but they had a two mile chase through the woods. And rather than try and do it sort of turn by turn, um, I came up with a, a dexterity role to try and recreate the chase. So I, I kind of remember back in the day, I used to play a uh, James Bond yeah. role playing game. And that had specific rules for chases. Because obviously, James Bond films have a lot of chases in them. And so I tried to sort of mimic at least some of the principles of that. So I gave them a uh, a two-success head start, thanks to using the casket to break a hole in the line. And they then rolled, opposed roll dexterity against the natives' dexterity. And every success took them, increased that gap. And if they got to plus five successes... They were far enough away to disappear in the woods and have escaped the chase. If it came down to plus one, then the natives were close enough to throw a spear at them and they'd get a couple of spears chucked. If it came down to zero, then the natives were on top of them and could tackle them and bring them down. And that seemed to work really well. Uh, And that recreated a sort of two-mile, ten-minute chase in the space of about six or seven rolls. So it worked quite nicely. But I'd be interested to hear your views, other views on you know, on a chase mechanic, whether whether you know, there's something that you know the game needs, or whether sort of handling it in the way that I did is perhaps a you know, a good sort of on the hoof house rule to yeah. Try I and think I that. think
0: chase mechanics are, but anyway, um, <clears throat> can be over complex, and so
1: mm.
0: what you've suggested there works I agree. quite well. Um, it makes me think of the chase mechanics in feng shui which are kind of similar um
1: i don't really remember them i have mean, never run feng shui um only played it with you yeah it. um well
0: they, of course it makes everything relative as as you as you did you know are they close enough to chuck a spear at you? yeah are they close enough to engage you are they too far away and can you get further steps away and then you've lost them sort of thing uh, and I think that's yeah. that's kind of the way it should be. And it, again, it's something similar in Knights, Black Agents, and you know those um, those Gumshoe games, which of course share an author with with Feng Shui. Um, so you can see it happening there as well.
1: Mm, yeah, um, yeah. In Mutant Year Zero, you have a move um, skill. And to disengage from a combat, all you need to do is succeed and a roll on that move skill, and then yeah. you move sufficiently well to, to escape the combat. Which I thought was, was a bit too easy to uh you know, to escape. So you're in a combat, you don't like it, oh I roll my move, yeah, fine, I'm I'm safe. Just felt a bit too get out of jail free like to me. Yeah. But um I think the way the way it worked, it seemed to work very well in the game, running the chase rules in the way that I uh, I chose to run them. Cool.
0: Um, I'm just trying to think. There's something similar, but we should check out the the, the rules in um, Forbidden Lands as well, because I think there is, there's a disengage for a move, but, of course, you've got to have the right... Um, you, it talks about getting out of... You've got to um, disengage and also get out of the zone, as it were. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we could look into that.
1: Okay, well, I'll have a look at those and uh, and, and uh, yeah, see for next time. But um, anyway, at the end of uh, end of the scenario, they managed to get to a planet with a, uh, a small spaceport, and that's where they are in advance of the next scenario, which is next week, which I'm going to run two over Easter whilst Morgan is back from university, and we'll have a full complement of players. I'm hoping that in those two scenarios, we will resolve this... Part cool. of the campaign, they will hopefully find Resim and uh, resolve uh, what's been going on all this time. So uh, it'd be Excellent. good if we can do that.
0: Um, it, also, having cool. them crashed on the planet, uh, how damaged was their ship? Or rather, I, I guess well, what I'm actually I'd... asking is, how did you, how did you sort of um, mechanically deal with the repairs?
1: Right, I haven't mechanically dealt with the repairs yet. Um, what I did for the damage was I produced a bespoke critical hit table for mm-hmm. the Spectre Corsair. And then I rolled on that. Now, my plan had been, if Paul had been uh, available uh, for the game, I was going to roll the damage there and then in front of them. Um but also have the reactor on meltdown. So the very first which, thing they had to do was shut the reactor down before yeah. the ship would explode while dealing with the fires, while dealing with the cavern hags coming through the, the tears in the hull. But without him being there and therefore having nobody with a technology skill, I put that bit to one side and just left, left it with the fires and the creatures, which worked fine. Um, but yeah, so I had a, a, a bespoke table in the end the actual amount of damage that the ship's taken was kind of irrelevant. I'll decide before the next scenario what the repairs will look like, how many rolls they need and how much it's going to cost, but it's going to be expensive so the ship is pretty badly mm. damaged. All right. So they might find that <clears throat> they might find that their nice little pot of burr that they've been building up might suddenly Spent. be significantly <laughs> reduced.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, of course, um, the... you guys are prisoners in my campaign, and I'm thinking, yeah, how, how do I deal with that in the next in the next adventure? Because nobody <laughs> likes being prisoners. Although, um, you know, maybe maybe an adventure in a prison is is fun, but only only if it ends with you getting out of prison. Uh... <laughs> yeah.
1: If it ends in a 30-year jail sentence, it might not be such a blast. (laughs) And
0: next week, we'll be doing year two. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh,
0: you know, I'm thinking uh, prison planet, broadly speaking, and how do you get off the prison planet? Uh, Obviously, you're not going to have your ship because you're going to have been taken there in in stasis beds and then woken up to some horrible surprise, which I'm still thinking about how horrible I can be um so i'm thinking (laughs) that may it may well have the adventure of effectively somehow building your own ship which i you know i think we can we can create a a way where that might happen interesting or you know find finding the
1: the a team the a team goes on holiday exactly
0: or or people have been building (laughs) a ship for generations and you just happen to be there at the time when it's all you know where your contribution actually gets the thing working or whatever um, so, yeah, I'm just really interested cool, in uh, cool. how how people get off planets when their ships have been destroyed is a topic that I'm thinking of. Your ship <laughs> hasn't been destroyed, but it's somewhere else, of course, now. Um, whether you want to go and yeah, find Mukafar yeah. again or whether we say, you know, here's an opportunity to build another ship. Oh, this is fun. We like this new one. I don't yeah. know yet. We'll we'll um, we'll think about uh-huh. that new at the time, I guess. Got months before cool. we're playing that again, though, aren't we?
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I think we've probably banged on enough for one day. Um, we've probably done. Is this I, our longest well, one now? It, it might well be. At, this recording so, um, is coming
0: up to uh, two hours. One hour 50. and we haven't done many yeah. um, retakes, as it were. Uh, no, so it's all, it must no, all be gone. We've just
1: dust, been blathering on. We I mean, had to. It must be. Well, it has been a month because of my availability. So, uh I guess we've got a lot of stuff yes. to get out there. We just can't stop talking. But um unless there's anything else, Matthew? Well, uh, there's one
0: there's one thing. Uh uh we 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 appear to be going through the factions at a tremendous rate and uh yes. I wonder whether we should look in detail at another faction next time. And
1: we can do that. It's, it's your my turn it's my to, turn to uh, research, isn't it? So, Kate, okay, which one are you giving me then, Matt?
0: Thought, uh, thinking about the underrated faction of um, uh, of the Nomad Federation, I wondered whether we ought to explore that faction whose motto is "Every human is a world of its own," and that faction is Alarms mm-hmm. Temple. Do you want to take that on? Okay.
1: Yeah. I will take that on. Mission accepted. We'll, we'll find out more
0: than we ever wanted cool. to know about the sex aspects of. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll
1: I'll I'll try and limit my research <laughs> a little bit this time.
0: Yeah, don't <laughs> don't don't use your imagination cool. too much, because because frankly, we don't want to go. No. There.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Right. Thanks. Okay. On that note, uh, I think. Well, it's goodbye for me. me. And. May the icons bless your adventures.
0: You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.